Syzygy episode 31, LIGO gets an upgrade. And welcome to episode 31 of the Syzygy podcast. My name is Chris Stewart and on the microphone opposite me, as ever, is Emily Brunsden. Hi, Emily. Hello, hello. So today we're going to be talking about something which we've been threatening to talk about for a really long time. It keeps coming up in podcasts and we keep pushing it further down, we keep kicking that can down the road every time the subject of gravitational waves comes up. The big discovery only a few years ago that Einstein was right that gravity waves really do exist, and we've glossed over it, I don't know how many times in the last 30 episodes. We're going to get there today because the big detector program, the big experiment which has detected the gravitational waves, has decided or has got the funding to get a big upgrade to make it even more sensitive. And so Emily and I discussed it and thought, have we ever talked about this? I think it's time. So today is all about the gravitational waves and the LIGO. About time, Emily? It's definitely time. Today is the day. Yeah, we're ready. We're ready. So it's going to be all the gravitational waves today. So let's uh, let's start a little bit with the with the news. The news is that this detector, which is called LIGO, or strictly advanced LIGO, what does LIGO stand for? Laser Interferometry Gravitational Wave Observatory. Okay, so let's pull that one apart. It's an observatory, which means it's observing things. It's an experiment. Gravitational Wave Observatory, it's an observatory which is looking at gravitational waves. We've got that much. Yep, they cut out the, the W, which is a bit annoying. Well, yeah, but there will be LIGWO, which doesn't roll off the tongue nearly as well, but LIGO. The LI, though, Laser inf- Interferometry, which is hard to say quickly. What's that? Well, we're going to talk about exactly how LIGO works, mm-hmm. and it is the process of laser interferometry that allows us to detect gravitational waves. Right. So these are, this is, I mean, in a way, it's kind of a telescope in that it's looking at stuff from far away, but it's a very, very different kind of telescope. Yeah. And it's got, it's a weird thing, which has got these two four kilometer long arms at right angles stretching out across the landscape, bouncing laser beams off mirrors, coming, bringing them back together and detecting tiny, tiny differences in the paths that those lasers have traveled down to just ludicrous amounts of precision. And it's an amazing experiment or actually two amazing experiments because there's two of them and they compare results. So that is what that that's the experiment. That's what's getting the big upgrade. That's the advanced LIGO, which is going to be turned into advanced LIGO plus, which is very exciting from a marketing point of view. A plus. A plus. Uh, does sound a little bit like a laundry detergent, but we can move past that. So that's the news. That's why we're talking about this. But really, in the last couple of years, this has been a very big story. It's been a very big story in physics. It's been a big story in astronomy. It's been really exciting because. This is something that we've been looking for for a really long time, these gravitational waves. So, Emily, take us back to back to the beginning. Shall we start with, what's a gravitational wave? What is a gravitational wave? Let's this start is, with that. This is a great, a great question. So we've known about gravitational waves, or at least theorised about gravitational waves, for a very, very long time. And this actually goes back all the way to Einstein in 1916. Right. So Einstein put together his general theory of relativity. And this was a theory of gravity and how the universe was structured that made observable predictions. Now, many of those predictions we weren't able to observe until a very, very long time later. Yeah, I mean, it was a theory way before its time in the sense that a lot of the stuff that came out of it, people just went, how would you even find that? You know, some of the some of it was really quick. Things like, do you know what? Light gets 
bent around really massive things like the sun. So maybe we could look for stars that ought to be hidden behind the sun during an eclipse. And, and if we can see them, that means the light's been bent. And that was something that we were able to do really quite quickly. So that kind of prediction of general relativity came about quite quick. And everyone went, hey, well done, Albert. That was good. And he went, yeah, I know. I was, you know, I knew that was going to happen because it's my theory. But there are a bunch of things like gravitational waves, which were much, much harder. Yeah. And Einstein himself thought that they were always going to be too, too weak for us ever to be able to detect. So I guess the paradox is he was right. Yeah. But, but he was also wrong. Yeah. Because took we a, found them. It took a really long time. I mean, I can remember when way, way back in the early 90s, early 1990s. So we're going back a bit too much longer than I would like to admit. But anyway, best part of 30 years. When I was an undergraduate student in Australia and we had a visit from um, someone from another university who was doing some very early gravita gravitational wave experiments and they were trying to figure out what is the best way to do these experiments. Should we use lasers? Should we just use this, this enormous uh, bar of this very special pure metal which would then ring like a bell if a gravity wave, gravitational wave came through it things like that and all of the professors in the room all the really big brainy physicists were just looking at each other going this guy's nuts like there is no way that you will ever measure these things it's just too small and you could you could hear the skepticism in the room well fast forward 10 years into the early 2000s, that was when this experiment LIGO was built. And they were right. They couldn't detect it. <laughs> but then another decade, decade and a half later, we're finally getting there. So, you know, for a really long time, this has been, this isn't possible. But that's kind of the way physics works. It's not possible until it is. And until you make it, it possible. Yeah. So why are these things so hard to spot? What what is it about gravitational waves that's so hard? Well, it's well they're really hard to imagine actually what's going on in the first place. Well, let's let's start with that with them. Yeah. What is a gravitational wave and why? Yeah, so they what happens is when you have a sudden change in gravity, then waves are formed which ripple through the universe. Now, waves need a medium in which to travel. Generally, they do, yes. Or at least they, they need to be traveling in something. And the whole concept of what's a medium and what stuff gets a little bit hazy when you start talking about some kinds of waves. Yeah. Well, so a more familiar example would be looking at the waves rippling across the surface of a pond. Yeah. They're causing the, the pond itself, the surface of the pond, to move. Mm -hmm. The actual molecules of water are sloshing up and down. Yeah. As we're jabber-drawing into these microphones, we're moving the air around in the room, which means that you can make sound, which is then picked up by the microphones. And so and you take that into space. If you try and talk in space, it's a vacuum, so there's no particles, there's nothing to move. So if you go and scream at the top of your lungs in space, there's nobody to hear you scream, first of all, but your scream doesn't come out. As the famous quote from, what was it, Alien says, in space, no one can hear you scream. Yes. So... Waves need a medium, but what about things like light? I mean, light is a wave, but what's it traveling through in order to get to us through space? And that was a really interesting question for a really long time, around about the same time, actually. Cause, and, and Einstein was one of many people who figured all of that stuff out, going back a little bit earlier than that to Maxwell and so on. And the answer to that one was that, well, space and time, space is filled with this field called the electromagnetic field. It's everywhere in space, it's at every point in space and can have different values. And light is a wiggle in the electromagnetic field. It's not moving particles of stuff around, 
It's instead changing the properties of that field, which is a difficult thing to wrap your head around, but that's all right, because physicists get very used to just dealing with stuff that's hard to imagine and going, that's fine. It's just how it is. But gravity is a bit different. Yeah, gravity we associate with like real particles and mass and, you know, you drop an apple and it falls to the floor. So how does a gravitational wave work in space where you don't have particles to move around? Well, presumably you could do something a little bit like the whole light thing and just say, well, you've just got a gravitational field and we can have a wave in the gravitational field. But Einstein looked at it a little bit differently. Yes, so he didn't. He took that step concept of a gravitational field a bit further, and looked at actually what is the underlying structure of all of the universe, and this is where we come with the up with the concept of space time. Right, right. People who've who've heard about Einstein and his theories of of relativity, general general theory of relativity, probably have heard of the concept of curved space time that massive things bend the space-time around them. And this was the this was the big link that Einstein and his colleagues made, was that gravity is about the way the structure of space-time itself responds to mass and, and energy, is that the structure of space and time actually bends, it changes, it curves. What's that wonderful quote that that mass tells space how to curve and space tells mass how to move. Is that right? Is that uh, how yeah, it goes? Ma- yeah, matter tells space-time how to curve and, and space-time tells matter how to, yeah, to, how to behave, how to move. How yeah. to move, yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So this concept of, of bent and warped space-time, very difficult for us to actually envisage. One of the classic ways of thinking about it is to imagine the bed sheet or the, the large, I don't know, rubber sheet that can, can stretch and bend and you put a bowling ball in the middle of it and it... it it bows down and stretches and, and makes a big curved space. And then you could roll a, a smaller ball, say a marble or something, around that. And that's analogous to a planet going around the sun, around the, the, the curved space-time that the sun creates from its huge mass. Um, but that's about the only way that you can imagine it, really. Yeah, and you've got to move that into three dimensions yeah. at least. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's, it's a really hard thing to, to wrap your head around. It's very, very difficult. But it does work, the analogy. And uh, so a gravitational wave would be like if you had your big bowling ball in the middle of your rubber sheet and then you instantaneously swapped it out for a marble. Okay, so you've just suddenly changed the, the, the curvature of that rubber sheet. You've just suddenly given it basically a little bit of a twang as the, as the sheet bounces back. Yeah, yeah. And so it will cause ripples that go throughout the sheet. And that's the actual fabric of the sheet going waving back and forth, some of it's stretching, some of it's uh, contracting. And that's a bit like how a gravitational wave moves through the universe. So the actual matter in the, in the universe will stretch and, and uh, contract as a gravitational wave passes through it. But gravitational waves are very small. Mm-hmm. So the, this is this is the trick, isn't it? Yeah, the ripples are very very small, and this is why Einstein said, "Well, we're just never going to be able to see them because they're not only subatomic, so smaller than an atom, but they are substantially smaller than an atom." These ripples. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, gravity is how many times weaker a force than electromagnetism, say? I mean, electromagnetism is something that we deal with every day. We use electricity to turn on our lights and our computers and our our stuff around us. Um, But we also see its effect in in lightning and, you know, static electricity when you rub a a balloon on your head and you you can make your hair stand up and stuff. And that's, that's the forces that we see in our macroscopic world all the time. From tiny, absolutely tiny amounts of electric charge, comparatively, Gravity 
you know, you can you can drop something off your desk and it might take a second to hit the floor. And that's from the gravitational attraction of an entire planet. You know, if you think about it that way, gravity is an incredibly weak force. It's something like 10 to the 40 times, like a one with 40 zeros after it, times weaker than the electromagnetic force. I think I've got that right. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really a lot weaker. It's just that we... Uh, perceive gravity to be stronger because we kind of move about in gravity and we drop things on the floor all the time. Yeah, but then again, we're also attached to a very, very large planet. Yes. You know, in this room here, Emily, you and I have gravitational attraction between us, but we're not clumping together because it's incredibly weak. Um, Whereas if we were (laughs) comprised just purely of, say, negatively charged electrons, then... That would be an enormous explosion that you cannot even begin to imagine. So gravity is very, very weak, which means that if you can make a gravitational wave, it's going to be really, really, really tiny. Yes. Or to look at it conversely, in order to actually make one that we could detect, it's going to have to be created by some kind of pretty extreme event. Now, you mentioned before this sort of you know, mental image of, well, imagine you've got you know, your bowling ball in the middle of your sheet and you just swap that out for a marble. That's not the sort of thing that's going to happen in space, though. You're not going to have sort of the sun suddenly getting replaced by Mercury. So we're talking about other kinds of events that might create these gravitational waves that we hope to detect. What sort of things are candidates for gravitational wave detection? Yeah, well, to detect the strongest gravitational waves, which if they're going to be hard to detect, you've got to go for the, the ones that are the strongest first. So to find those, we need to go to some of the most dense objects in the universe that have the biggest changes in gravity. And so these usually come in binary pairs, and these are binary pairs of black holes, super, super dense objects, um, or binary pairs of neutron stars. Now, black holes and neutron stars by themselves are pretty interesting things. You know, a black hole is one of the most interesting objects that you can possibly imagine where there's there's so much mass squeezed down to just such a small area that it's basically turned into a no-go zone where nothing can get out once it's gone inside and we don't actually even really completely understand them it's it's where physics sort of breaks down neutron stars are almost there incredibly dense it's where all the matter has effectively squeezed down to turn it into one enormous lump of atomic nucleus and they're amazing things themselves But you're talking about having two of these orbiting around each other. That can't come up often, surely. Well, that doesn't happen that often, but the universe is a big place. (laughs) Well, we've come across this concept on the podcast before. When you've got an enormous universe filled with billions and billions and billions of galaxies, each with billions and billions and billions of stars, then very, very rare things happen quite frequently. Is that the concept? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so out there, not maybe not in our galaxy, but in lots of other galaxies around us, then you'll be able to find some of these examples of uh, black holes and neutron stars now um, in pairs. And if, if you just go and find a pair, well, that's not... The pair itself doesn't produce gravitational waves. Right. I mean, they're orbiting around each other, but that's that's not an enormous energetic event in and of itself. No, you need that big gravitational change. And what that when that happens is when these two objects spiral in towards each other and actually coalesce, merge into one single mega object. Right. And so... Why would they spiral in towards each other? Why wouldn't they just keep orbiting in the way that, you know, the Earth is going around the sun? We're not spiraling in towards the sun, are we? 
Uh, no. No, good. <laughs> Phew, hang on. I just, just suddenly had a moment there. Uh, so because they're losing energy and right. these super, um, super dense objects very, very close to each other are throwing out energy, which means that they're spiralling and closer and closer and closer. And eventually there's kind of a big as these two coalesce. And actually that's a... I'm not too bad if I say so myself, but <laughs> imitation of how they've sonified some of these gravitational waves. Um, and they, yeah, they, they coalesce. And what happens is you have two objects, let's say object A and object B, could be two black holes, could be two neutron stars. But when they join and become object AB, they actually have less mass than A plus B. And is that because as they merge... That's a fairly big event and it, it sort of spits out an enormous amount of energy, that they shed a lot of stuff when they merge together. Yeah. It's yeah. not just two lumps of plasticine squashing together. There's actually a lot of stuff that gets thrown off. Yeah, a lot of that mass gets converted directly into energy. By e equals mc squared. Thank you, Einstein. Exactly. And so when that happens, that's a really quick thing. Yes. That's not spread out over you know days and weeks and months. That happens in a tiny fraction of a second. Yes. And so that final um, merging of those two objects is a huge change in gravity. And that's what causes the gravitational waves to start rippling out from that location. Yeah. Or rather, I mean, gravitational waves have been rippling out from this thing the whole time. You know, one way that an, an analogy to the to electromagnetism is that you get... Um, electromagnetic waves, light or other kinds of, of you know, waves like radio waves and things like that, any time that you, you push an electron around or an electric charge around, right? If an electric charge accelerates, if it goes around in a circle or turns a corner or something, it spits out some waves of, of energy. It's happening all the time. So as those two black holes or neutron stars are spinning around each other, they're spitting out gravitational waves all the time. But we, they're just not big enough. Even these incredibly energetic and, and amazing things, they're still not big enough waves. We have to wait for that last cataclysmic event of, of them merging together to see anything that we could even conceivably detect. And these are some of the most energetic events in the universe. Yes. It doesn't get yeah. bigger than this. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, you're right. Every type of object that's, um, say, an orbiting planet around another star, a star orbiting around a galaxy, these are all creating gravitational waves all the time, but they're just so incredibly tiny. I mean, we're going to talk about the size of these mm. waves, and we're talking about the size of these waves from, as you say, some of the most energetic events in the universe, and we're only just able to detect those. Yeah, it's nuts. Absolutely nuts. So we need these enormous events, these incredibly energetic events in order to be able to see anything at all. But how do you detect gravitational waves? We've become very used to, in fact, for the entire history of humankind that we've been looking up at the stars, we've used electromagnetic radiation to see what's out there. We used light, visible light, and then we started moving into other non-visible but really useful things like radio waves and x-rays and stuff. So we've used electromagnetic radiation the whole time. How do you, use gravita how do you detect gravitational waves? How do you see them? Yeah, well, the nice thing is we still use light. Right. But we just use it in a slightly different way, and we use it here on Earth. And the form of light that we like to use is lasers. Oh, that would be the L in the LIGO. Yeah, yep. lasers. So this is um, actually quite an old concept in physics of detecting waves. And it's basically a Michelson interferometer. Okay, for those of you who have one at home. Yeah. Well, we, we've used them for a very long time to look at things like um, earthquakes, um, how the earth moves. And so the idea was, well, maybe we can just build an enormous one of these and detect gravitational mm, waves. Okay. So let's unpack that a little bit. A Michelson interferometer, an interferometer. The, the interference here is talking about when two beams of light, for example, 
two waves generally overlap with each other, then, you know, waves are wiggling up and down and you've got peaks and troughs. You've got the, you know, the top of the wave and the bottom of the bottom of the wave. And when they overlap with each other, they add up and they can add up in a way where a wave sitting on top of a wave makes a really big wave, or they can add up in a way where a wave sitting on top of a trough cancel out and, and make nothing. And you can get what's called interference patterns. If you've got a very particular wavelength, a very particular frequency of, of, the, of the wave, then you can get interference patterns of very large waves and nothing, and large waves and nothing. And this is what's known as, as interference. If you're using light or lasers, then those show up as bright, dark, bright, dark patches in the, in the pattern where the waves overlap on the wall. So you can set up a very clever device called an interferometer where the light going one way along one particular path and light going along a different path, bouncing off mirrors and coming back together again, overlap and form one of these interference patterns. But that pattern is going to depend on how far the light has gone along each of those paths. And that means that if one of those paths changes slightly, if one of the arms of this device that the light's going along changes by even a tiny amount, you can see it in the pattern. The pattern will shift a little bit, and some of the bright bits become dark bits, and some of the dark bits become bright bits. It's a really good way of measuring changes in length of these arms of the interferometer, which means if, you know, it's a good earthquake detector, for example, because if one of those arms gets sort of wiggled a bit or squashed down because the, the ground itself has been moving around, then you can see it on the detector. So it's really useful. That's an interferometer. This is an interferometer on steroids. Yeah, right? yeah, they're really massive. Because the, the LIGO instrument, the LIGO interferometer has these long arms, the two arms of the interferometer, where laser light's traveling down them. But not only are those lasers traveling in really incredibly high vacuum, all the air's been pumped out as, as low as you could conceivably get, but they're four kilometers long. You know, it's an eight, is it four kilometers there and back or four kilometers, four kilometers plus? there and then four so kilometers so back. So eight kilometers yep. on two different arms and it's built across the landscape in straight lines like they really they've had to account for the fact that the earth curves over the distance of these these things by as much as a meter or so so they've actually had to do precision concrete laying and stuff in order to get these things right bouncing off mirrors at the end and coming back and joining up together in order to be able to see whether or not one of these gravitational waves passes through and what wiggles one of the arms yeah, because the longer the path that you have that your laser light has travelled, then the more chance that a very, very small wave, which would stretch out that laser light in one direction or compress it in another direction. And that's why the two arms are, are 90 degrees to one another. They're in this L shape because if it's going to wiggle in one way, then it doesn't wiggle in the other way because the, the wave is travelling from a point direction in the sky. Because, I mean, that's the thing about gravitational waves is that they are waves in the space-time itself. So as they pass through, they actually make the space-time, the space along one of these arms, actually stretch and contract a little bit. Yeah. Do you want to have a guess at what, how much? Well, I know because oh, I've know. looked cheated. it up, but it is, it is extraordinary. And it is one of those things that just, hang on, let me just stop and take this in for a second. So hit us with it, Emily. How sensitive are these devices. Okay, so we have an atom, right? Atoms yep. are made up of electrons and go, they're going around a nucleus which has neutrons and protons in the centre of it, right? So a, not just an atom, which is small. Mm -hmm. An atom is about 10 to the minus 10 metres across. Very, very small. 
but then go into the nucleus and find a proton, mm-hmm. so an even smaller part of an atom. So that's one tiny microscopic bit of an atom. Yep. And we're going to be a thousandth of the diameter of a proton. Of a single proton. And that's, so just to be clear, that's the difference in path length that we're measuring. So as the laser goes along one of these arms and comes back again and meets with the other laser beam that's gone along the other arm, if the if one of those arms has changed in length by that amount, one thousandth of the diameter of a single proton, they can detect that. Yeah, it's so, so cool. I mean, that's just it's nuts. So, it's amazing because the, the laser itself, as you say, when you have a, a peak and a trough together, they cancel out and you get zero light. So there's a there's a photo detector that's detecting have we got light from this this laser or not. Most of the time when there's no gravitational waves, there's nothing because those laser beams come in and they're um, sitting there. So you get the peak and the trough lining up. There's just nothing there. If you move the either one of the arms by a thousandth of the diameter of a proton, then you move it enough so that you get two peaks line up or two troughs line up, does the same thing, and you get a detection of light. Which is just absolutely off the charts. And you can see when you, when you think about that why for so long for not just decades, for the best part of a hundred years, the general consensus has been, you've got Buckley's chance of ever, ever observing these things. Like once you do the back of the envelope calculations, which they would have done a hundred years ago. So how big are these gravity waves, gravitational waves then? And the answer comes back, yeah, you'd, you'd need to be able to basically see, not, not the order of an atom, like 10,000 times smaller than that. Okay, that's never going to happen. Even within the last couple of decades, it's, I don't know if we can do this. And one of the other reasons for that, it's not just that it's so small, but when you actually build a machine, like even even if you could on paper say, all right, let's build these things with four kilometer long arms. And in principle, we could do this. You're actually at the level where even the tiniest vibrations along the way, you know, the mirrors on the end will be sitting there vibrating away because they're they're in the world and the world vibrates they have a temperature and that's what temperature is temperature is vibration they're going along four kilometers plus another four kilometers to come back through stuff it doesn't matter how much you pump it down and all of that is going to add vibration and if you're trying to measure something which is one thousandth the width of a proton then any amount of vibration is going to get in the way so it is absolutely staggering that we can do this at all what i love is that okay so they turned ligo on the original ligo they turned on what back 2002 2002 yeah and they took measurements for the best part of 10 years they turned it off again in 2010 and said okay we haven't seen anything but we have learned a lot (laughs) we now know the limitations of this device and let's try again they turned it back on in 2015 and within what it was a few two, days. Two couple of days, yeah. certainly within a couple of weeks, basically turning it on to do testing. And someone went, hang on, what? look at that. And it was, that, that's, that was a gravitational wave. That, look, everyone, everyone gathered around. And they made this discovery in testing phase of advanced LIGO. And everyone went, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> we, we thought it was going to happen. We didn't know it was going to happen so quickly. 
it was just stunning, absolutely it's stunning. Just such a fascinating, um, it's one of those wonderful stories in yeah. science as well. And yeah. yeah, just a fascinating discovery. We discovered at that point a black hole merger, which was really amazing. And you think, you know, black holes are pretty rare and, you know, the universe is big. But isn't it wonderful that we can actually observe two of these things yeah. merging together? Yeah. And, you know, so either there was an amazing coincidence that, oh, we turn it on and within days, oh, look, there's two black holes merging. So that means a couple of things. Either that's really, like, incredibly coincidental. You know, what are the, what are the odds? That was lucky. Wow. Or, much more likely... Actually, there's probably quite a few of these things happening all the time that we've just never been able to pick them up before. So I'm guessing, I mean, I haven't looked this one up, but I'm guessing that since that first detection back in 2015, we've seen more than one? Yeah, we've got 10 10 black hole collisions. So that's 10 in the space of less than four years. Yeah, and the the machine's not been on all that time, right? So we turn it on for for periods of time when when all the the, the stars align, that's a bit of a... (laughs) Yeah, maybe That's maybe choose a, a different romantic. analogy. Yeah, but uh, I can yeah, imagine that that after they saw that first one, they just went, "Hang on, turn it off, turn it off." Okay, wait, 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 wait. Is that real? <laughs> like, did you, did someone sneeze? What is that thing? And you would very carefully then turn that one back on again to see if it happens again. And it has 10 times. Yes, yeah. And some of them we actually had to go back and look really, really carefully through the data. They don't always just sort of pop up as this, uh, you know, flashing lights and uh, music starts going. Uh, They are difficult to find even in the data because... As we mentioned, this is hard and noise is a huge, huge problem. Uh, The noise that you have in your system can make it very, very difficult to disentangle a signal out of that noise. Yeah, but the signal is really interesting. And you actually did do a pretty good impression of it before because a merging pair of or merging pair of black holes, or they've actually seen a pair of neutron stars merging. One of those, those, I think. So 10 black holes and one, one neutron. Um, And it actually does make this very characteristic signal, which if you then turn that signal into, okay, so what would that sound like if we could hear it, if it was an audio wave, actually makes what they call a chirp. You know, you've got these two objects which are rotating around each other, losing energy, so they're speeding up and speeding up, and suddenly, very quickly, you've got this... which then suddenly turns into the... into the, the, the energetic gravitational wave that we can actually see but it's this chirp it's this lovely signal which yeah. you did a very good impression on before. yeah it's always struck me though how uh, calm well not you know how, how small those noises sound when you think about these i know because one you, of the most energetic if things you were in the right universe. next to it you go bloody hell what was that and it just turns up on our incredibly de- sensitive detectors as this just little almost you know bird noise it's it's quite <laughs> sweet for something which would have been just ridiculously catastrophic if you were anywhere nearby. So anyway, that's kind of fun. So that happened back in 2015. And we're now doing it, if not routinely, 10 times on various occasions over the last several years. It's now becoming something which we really do have a lot of confidence in. I mean, I can remember in 2015 when it first happened, there were a lot of people kind of going... Okay, but let's be really careful here because if this isn't real, then we're going to make fools out of ourselves. So let's check this data really, really carefully. But I mean, it matches the models incredibly well. We've seen a whole bunch of them. But not only that, haven't there been a few occasions where because we've seen the gravitational waves, we've been able to fast enough be able to turn other telescopes to go there, that thing, it was that. 
Yeah, that was the amazing Neutron Star merger. Right. That was so, so cool. So uh, this was in 2017. We had two neutron stars that uh, coalesced into one sort of super object. So just to remind you of the scale of this kind of... But you, black holes are big, and we're used to thinking about black holes as big. Neutron stars are not quite as big, not quite as massive anyway. Yeah, um, I mean, when you're talking big, yeah. you're talking massive. Yeah. Yeah. So these are neutron stars that are a few times the, the mass of the sun mm -hmm. compressed down to something maybe about the size of York. Right. So, yeah, incredibly dense. Yeah, just, just a few kilometers across. Yeah. So really, really high energy objects. And what was really great about that detection was that we were able to look at the light coming from that area of sky. We, could, we pinpointed kind of roughly using the gravitational waves where this object was in the sky. We didn't know exactly, um, but this is why we have two detectors. And with Virgo, which is the um, Italian instrument, we even have three. Right. So you can triangulate. If you get the same gravitational wave detection in three detectors, well, first of all, that's a pretty good yeah. sign that Something it's just happened somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But more importantly, if you've only got the one, it's very difficult to say, so where did that come from? But if you've got two or better, three quite far spread apart then you can look at incredibly tiny differences in these incredibly tiny signals in the timing of it to say well it must have come from up there then yes yeah so it was, we were able to put out an alert and say okay everyone with telescopes look at this thing now quick see, turn look now, at this bit go, of sky go. see if there's anything there but i mean seriously over what kind of time frame like would they have to do it like now go now now it, or yeah. have you got like days well it depends on the which um what light you're looking for yeah so yeah, okay. uh, light depend takes well obviously light travels at the speed of light that's which is by definition yeah pretty quick yeah <laughs> pretty quick but um because of the way that light interferes with all the intervening matter in between us and the gravi you know, gravitational wave source then some of that light takes longer to reach us. Right, than right. Because, because the speed of light isn't the speed of light. I mean, it is. But when we talk about the speed of light and it being a constant, what we're talking about this is the speed of light in a vacuum. Whereas if there's actually any stuff, like air, then, then light goes slightly slower through that stuff. But it doesn't even have to be as thick as air. If it's going through just space, there is some stuff in space. And it will slow down over very, very large distances and, and periods of time it'll be going ever so slightly slower than the speed of light and will come to us. Whereas, whereas gravitational waves don't get no, slowed down. No, there's no energy loss really. Right. Um, so the gravitational waves arrived and then a few days later we started getting high energy stuff first. And then, Okay, so it is a couple of days. Yeah, and wow. then eventually over, I think it was more than a month later, we started seeing the radio signature. Oh, really? So that much? Yeah, so it's wow. quite a long and intensive observing period. Wow. But what I mean, what a fabulous thing to be able to say to the world's astronomers and the world's best telescopes okay we've seen this thing everyone pay attention you've got to go and look here that's so cool yeah yeah it's really nice uh, and there's so only been one of those there's only, only been, been one of those right. but we really want more okay so that's kind of the point isn't it because where we started this podcast was hey guess what advanced LIGO is now being is, is now going to become advanced LIGO plus so What's the plus? It's getting an upgrade. Yeah. Well, we originally, um, well, in the current LIGO configuration, we can see things out to about 170 megaparsecs. Okay. Translate that into something that I might understand. That's maybe half a billion light years half away. Half a billion light years. Yeah, still struggling. A long way. A long way. <laughs> half a billion light years. I mean, it sounds like a very long way, but give me a sense of that in terms of 
our galaxy, nearby galaxies, larger clusters of galaxies. How far across the universe are we going? Quite a long way. Yeah. Quite a long way. Lots and lots of galaxies. So yeah. it's, you know, it's much, much bigger than our galaxy, much, much bigger than the local group of galaxies that we live in, much, much glo- uh, more, much, much more distant than even our big cluster that we of galaxies that okay. we live in. So what you're saying is that our current instrument, the current advanced LIGO instrument, can detect mergers of these black holes or neutron stars out to uh, within a volume which goes out quite a long way out you know collecting a lot of galaxies together but the upgrade's going to take us further than that yeah we want to double it right okay let's (laughs) let's not muck around yeah so we want to get out to a billion light years away that's a very long way it's a very long way Uh, well the universe itself is probably only something like 40 billion light years across That's, I think, something we might have to park, put a pin in that one for another time. I think at some point, Emily, we're going to have to talk about the size of the universe because that's not a trivial question. It's not, but I think for now we can say it's big Okay, and we want to survey quite a lot of it. As much as we possibly can. So we're going to double it. Fantastic. So we're going to go out. How far did you say? A A billion light years. A billion light years, which is a very long way. Very, very long way. Yeah. Another way of saying that is that we could see the merger of two black holes or two neutron stars a billion years ago. Yes. Which is cool. Very, very cool. Bend your head around that one. Okay. So, and there's um, four main ways that we're going to do this. Now, it's not cheap, right? Right. This is, I think they, this is the biggest science experiment that the uh, National Science Foundation in the US have put money into. Wow. So it's, if I remember correctly, it's something in the order of all up about, what was it, tw- $25 million? worth of upgrade? So 25 million pounds, pounds. worth of upgrade, which well, is about 35 million US dollars. I was about to say, given the way the pound's gone, that's, you know, give or take. Yeah. <laughs> it's about the same. Yeah. So, you know, this is just the upgrade cost. This, yeah. is, not, this is not the original to build the instrument. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that we're going to get out of this instrument. So that money's being spent on not only just, you know, buying some new lasers or new kit that, you know, that's going to improve the experiment itself, but actually into the research and development needed to improve the technologies that we have so that we can detect uh, more signal, less noise, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, isn't it? Because as we said before, even just getting to this point, you've got incredibly, incredibly precise mirrors which have amazing uh, coatings on them that reduce the reduce the noise. They're hanging in, in incredibly noise dampening ways. We've got we've got vacuums lower than any vacuum on the planet, pretty much. Just the most incredible engineering and science and technology going into these things. Taking that this next step with the upgrade, there's a lot of spin offs that come from that just in being able to solve that problem. Yeah, yeah. Because let's let's take just one of the upgrades. We're going to get shinier mirrors. Shinier mirrors. Everyone loves a shinier mirror, yeah, but I mean, okay. Well, it's a huge thing in optics and uh, optical technologies because whenever you bounce light, whether it's a laser, whether it's uh, visible light or even any other type of light off of a surface, even if it's shiny like a mirror, you lose a part of that light, right? So no, nothing, no mirror is 100% efficient, but we'd like it to be. Uh, because if, it's, if you are thinking about LIGO, it's bouncing lights back and forth off these mirrors up and down that four-kilometer corridor hundreds of times, that same laser beam. And so if every time you're losing, say, 1% of your light, by the time you've done that a few hundred times, well, you've lost all your there's, light. There's not much times, left. Right? Not much left. Yeah, exactly. So you've, um, And even fractions of a percent, you're going to lose a significant fraction of your original beam. So we don't want to do that. We mm. want to keep as much as we possibly can. And in order to solve that, just that one engineering problem, you've got to 
to improve your manufacturing. You've got to figure out entirely new ways of coating mirrors in order to reduce the reduce the loss. This is this is incredible technology. Yeah, so that's one of the big upgrades that's going to happen over the next few years. Mm, but there are lots more. Yep, there's, yep, there's two big other ones. So there's uh, the mirrors and their coatings and making them shinier. We're also going to stabilize those mirrors a bit better because, as you've mentioned, them wiggling around doesn't help. You get lasers hitting different, slightly different parts of the mirror with each successive bounce. Then, and if those mirrors are wiggling a little bit because of earthquakes or me jumping up and down, waving my hands around, someone sneezing nearby. <laughs> yeah. And then, remember, we are talking about incredibly tiny differences. Super so, tiny. yeah, stuff for which you you could normally say that mirror is basically steady. It's like, no, basically is not good enough. We're talking a thousandth the width of a proton here. Yeah. yeah, these so, things have got so to be very stable. they've got to be super stable. So, in, you know, help, helping the suspension of those mirrors, making sure that they are as still, basically, as we can possibly make them. And then the last one, which I found quite interesting, mm-hmm. which I think I do need to do some more reading about because it also confused me a little bit, is that um, these, when we talk about lasers, so we're talking about light and we're talking about measuring things that are tiny, tiny distances, so a thousandth of a proton. You very quickly hit quantum physics at mm. this point, right? Mm. So quantum physics, uh, there's lots of really interesting effects start to happen when you look at light or objects and in very, very small scales like this. And one of those uh, quantum uh, effects that's happening to the laser beam is it's kind of becoming a bit fuzzy. Mm. Things get fuzzy in the quantum realm. You try to try to pinpoint things too much and they get very slippery. And they yes. say, well, no, I'm not going to be pinpointed. I'm going to go over here for a while. So I guess the macroscopic effect of that is the laser becomes kind of a bit fuzzy, a bit blurry. Which is not what you want in this case. No, exactly. But so, you can't get around quantum. You can't get rid of quantum. That's 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 how quantum works. So what are they doing? You can't get rid of it, but you can kind of move the effect around. Ah. So if you're getting a lot of noise in one particular area, you can't get rid of that noise from quantum mechanics, but you can sort of shift where that error, where that uncertainty is. Right. You can sort of squeeze it a bit and say... I don't mind if this aspect of, for example, the laser, I don't mind if this aspect is really, like, be as noisy as you want. Go nuts. If we can shunt it all over there and just keep a bit of precision over here and let's look at this bit and use that and be as precise as we want. Is that kind of what's going on? Yeah, well, they use the word squeezing. Yeah. So they're going to squeeze the, the laser. Quantum people like squeezing things. <laughs> it's, it's really bizarre. But we do do this um, already at Virgo, so the other Italian detector. So and, we need, and we've got some ideas of how we can develop that technology even further, which is, I think, what the Australian um, collaboration wants to get really involved in in LIGO. So it's some really cool stuff. And it's, so it's not just kind of let's just go out and buy the new newest fandangled mirror. We've got to go and develop that yes, technology. This is the new fandangled yeah. mirror that, that someone will be flogging to someone else for a completely different application down the track. This is how this stuff gets made. Yeah. And then, you know, once we've improved the quantum technologies for the lasers, then, well, lasers are used in so many applications. Everywhere. Right? Yeah. So there's some fantastic technologies that I think will spin out of these uh, developments as well. But if we just look at the pure science of what uh, LIGO is going to be doing. Yeah, I mean, put all that useful stuff aside and let's just let the brain let's expand Let's just get a bit this. nerdy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Then there's going to be some amazing new things that we can do. All with, right, with go LIGO. on there. So the forecast, if you like, for LIGO is that in the 2020s, 
So once all these upgrades are all done, maybe 2022 to 2024. Which I don't know about you, but it, that still sits in my mind as, oh, but that's ages away. No, hang on. It's 2019 now. Yeah, it's 2020 next year. So that's that's like next year and onwards. Okay, yeah. so soon. Yeah, yeah, soon. We'll be detecting something like a black hole merger every month to begin with. Mm-hmm. Eventually getting down to a black hole merger every hour. Wow. So we've gone from 10 over the space of three and a half years to every month which is, you know, that's a modest upgrade to every hour. Wow. I know. That's fantastic. That's brilliant. And once you've got that kind of data, then you've got statistics. Yes, that's right. Because then you can start saying it's not just the only one or, the, or a small group of them. You can now start saying, well, shall we compare? <laughs> shall we compare yeah. and contrast? Are they all the same? If they're not all the same, how do they differ? Let's actually figure this stuff out. What's going on? Yeah. And so we'll get the black holes and we'll also get the neutron star mergers. Yeah, because we've only seen one of those so far. So presumably, for whatever reason, whether it's because there's fewer of them or they're harder to see, but we're not seeing as many of them. So how many of those would we expect? We're hoping to get somewhere like 10 to 15 a month. Okay. That's still pretty good. That's like one every other day. Yeah, it's good stats. Wow. It's really good stats. So super, super exciting. Mm. And there are more questions, therefore, that we, with that kind of data that we can start to ask. Like what? Well, we can start with the neutron stars. We don't know an awful lot about neutron stars, apart from they're this super dense ball that's there. It's kind of the leftover bits of stars. Uh, but what are they really like? The physics gets really crazy on these objects, and we really would like to understand what the structure of neutron stars is like. You know, and we can get some really unique information from the gravitational waves when these two things merge. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's it's a hell of a lot of reverse engineering in there. That if you're taking this ridiculously energetic event of the merging of the two of them, you'd kind of think that's a little bit like trying to understand how a car works by watching an accident. But you could, in principle, work yourself backwards from one of these neutron star mergers to say, okay, well, if it gives us this signal, the only way that that could have happened is if the neutron stars are like this. Mm. And that's that's clever. Yeah. And we can get even the most basic kinds of information like mass of these neutron stars. So it goes everything from from the kind of very simple characteristics of neutron stars up to some really complex how do they actually uh, structure themselves. So this is this is why people talk about... This is a whole new branch of astronomy that we've never had access to before. That this, The astronomy that we've been using for a long time, using effectively only electromagnetic waves and maybe a bit of neutrinos, um, we've now got this entirely new window on the universe that you can start looking at these really weird things like neutron stars and black holes that we've never been able to do before. Yeah, and we can move even beyond that and start looking at some of the even bigger questions. Like? Some cosmologically large Ooh, questions. That's always fun. Yeah. So uh, one big question that we would like to be able to answer is how fast is the universe expanding? Okay. Well, we know the universe is expanding because that's what gave us the Big Bang in the first place. We realized 100 and something years ago. So much happened like 100 years ago. What a time to be around. Um, that the universe... All the, all the galaxies in the universe seem to be moving away from us. And I think we've talked about this before, and that was Mr. Hubble, Professor Hubble, Dr. Hubble, who realized that everything seems to be moving away from us. And the only way that that can be true is either we're the center of the universe, probably not, or everything's moving away from everything else, which means the universe is expanding, which means you wind the clock back. Everything was really close together and bundled up close and... That was the Big Bang. And you wind it back and it was about 13.8 billion years ago. Yeah. So everything since has been expanding. 
but there's a twist to that story, isn't there? Yeah. In the 1990s, we were able to measure that the universe is not just expanding, but the rate of expansion is accelerating. Which is very odd. Very because weird. if you know, you imagine an explosion, a naive idea of a big bang, everything would be rushing apart, but then gravity would be dragging on it and slowing that expansion down. And so maybe it would stop and crunch together again, or maybe it would just just keep on coasting apart forever. But you wouldn't expect it to speed up. No. What's that about? Uh, we don't really we, know. We still don't know. No. That's what, that's no. what cosmologists but we will, call we will dive dark into energy. And we'll, again, put a pin in that one. Yeah. But how is this going to help us to understand that? Well, because the measurements that we make um, are very confusing that we make about how fast the universe is expanding. We can make some very precise measurements in some particular directions in space using some particular types of objects. For example, the original objects we used were galaxies in the 1990s um, to measure the um, accelerating expansion. But you seem to get different numbers depending on where you look, what methods of measurement that you use. So having another... Uh, tool in your toolkit that's completely independent of all the others it doesn't use light at all it's using gravity and gravitational waves which have come through the space which is itself expanding could shed some light on in what way is that universe expanding yeah that's clever yeah so that's really quite cool so we're looking forward to getting some more results about that but you can even go even bigger. Oh, goodness. You're blowing my mind here, Emily. Okay, <laughs> what's bigger than that? What's bigger than the expansion of the universe? Come on. Well, we hope that gravitational waves will point us in the right direction towards a theory of everything. What? Come on. Okay, theory of everything. At the moment, we have a bunch of different theories, a bunch of different forces. We've got electromagnetism, which is all about light and charges and how light interacts with matter basically. You've got gravity, which we've talked a bit about today. You've got the nuclear forces. You've got the strong and weak nuclear forces. And the strong force is about how protons and neutrons stick together to make the nucleus of the atom and the bits that are inside, inside those, the quarks, stick together to make protons and neutrons. And you've got the weak nuclear force, which is a bit weird and different, but is, you know, related to radioactivity in different ways and different kinds of things. And neutrinos are in there somewhere. And that's all the forces that we know of. Only four. Only four. The really amazing thing is that we've been able to combine a bunch of those, right? Electricity and magnetism were separate. They became electromagnetism, just part of one single mathematical theory. That was amazing. And then guess what? The weak nuclear force, which seemed to be this completely different thing, is actually mathematically part of the same theory of electromagnetism and the weak force, the electroweak theory. It's all been combined together. There's a lot of work trying to put the electroweak together with the strong nuclear force and I haven't quite figured that one out. But the hope is that we can just keep rolling that theoretical idea along and have the theory of everything, which would have electromagnetism and the weak force and the strong force and gravity yes, all, together all together in the one set of equations you could write down on the back of a postcard and send to your grandma. And that would be cool, but that seems to be a very long way off. And you're saying this could maybe help? I think it will help, yeah, because okay. we're, we're getting more data. We're getting more data on some of the weirdest objects, the distant objects in the universe. And it will at least, it won't, it won't give us the theory, right? We're not going to suddenly read into the gravitational waves and get a nice new equation and <laughs> say, oh, be, yeah, that was it. We just didn't think about it. It won't be written before. into the signature of a black hole merger, no. No, but it will at least tell us maybe this is the right direction to be hitting your theories in because a lot of our um, 
some of the grand unified theories, which are kind of a step towards the theory of everything. They sound very grand. They do. They do. I mean, who who wouldn't want to work in that area? I mean, string theory is one example of this. But they're theoretical and we don't have observational predictions from the theories, let alone anything that we can actually attribute that we haven't been able to explain through our other yeah, I mean, that's been one of the big criticisms of a lot of this theoretical physics work and cosmological work is, yeah, but how are you going to do an experiment? You know, at some point you've got to be uh, answerable to the way the, the universe actually works. And a lot of people have sort of pointed towards string theorists and stuff and said, yeah, but you could never even in principle measure some of this stuff that you're talking about. So it's basically, you're just making it up. It's magic. but Maybe with maybe gravitational not. waves you could make a prediction about uh, what your particular theory should say about how these gravitational waves behave. Mind blown. <laughs> so if LIGO only points us in the direction of some of these theories, it's yeah. good news. Yeah. We will gonna we are gonna have a LIGO version two. Okay. So this is beyond advanced LIGO plus and into LIGO the Revenge, LIGO the Return, the sequel, LIGO two. Well it's LIGO in space. <laughs> of course it is. Because it's not hard enough to do on the ground. Let's put it in orbit. Fantastic. Yeah. So it's actually called LISA. It's a European Space Agency mission. And it's been given approval after approval for research, at least, into how this um, instrument might work. Okay. We like your idea. We'll give you some funding to figure it out. Yeah. So basically, instead of an L-shaped um, object, you know, laser beams traveling back and forth, which is on the surface of the Earth, then we have a triangle Instead of having four kilometers along each arm, two and a half million kilometers. Hang on. So I'm imagining this is not one orbiting satellite then this is a, a few different spacecraft bouncing stuff off them. yeah three yeah. wow three making a making a nice triangle wow so hang on so describe this to me where are these things or where would they be so they'll be in space yeah, yeah. clearly yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I figured that one you out you've got to go to Emily. space to get to an half look i know i'm not an astronomer <laughs> but i've got that much worked out thanks so um in an orbit a bit like the earth's orbit around the sun so that we can kind of talk to it and get mm-hmm. all the data off of it but um orbiting the sun itself rather than orbiting the earth and uh, yeah so you bounce the lasers around one way if you bounce them around the other way this is a bit like a ring laser that's so cool so that uh, yeah you can measure the difference between those two paths and did any gravitational waves wiggle their way around and that's such a massive scale that would be so incredible and 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 the noise would be so much lower because you're not attached to a planet yeah (laughs) you don't have earthquakes to worry about nobody's sneezing over your experiment really cold yes yes wow so it's it's technologically incredibly challenging, right? It's, it's, it's a, a mission under development. Thing. Yeah. Um, and we're looking at maybe, if everything goes really well, a launch in about 2034. Right. So that's a little bit further down the track. This is still a lot of speculation here. But wow, what an idea. Yeah. But it's amazing. And But now we know LIGO works. Yeah. And we've got a Nobel Prize for yeah. the discovery of gravitational waves. And Which has got to be one of the fastest Nobel Prizes you've ever seen. You yeah, know, between it came that out and, and the everyone, Higgs, yeah, everyone just yeah. went, yep, give it to them. Any other candidates? No, just give it to them now. <laughs> Have a meeting now and give it to them. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So we know that it works and we know we can detect them. So all these uh, results from LIGO will feed into uh, the optimization of LISA. Mm, come on, LISA.
Well, look, it was a long time coming, but we have spent the best part of an hour talking about some of the most awesome stuff. Unfortunately, we do have to bring it to an end. That is the end of this particular episode. Emily, thanks very much. That one's been coming for a long time. Oh, yes. It's yes. good to have that one out of the system, but I have a feeling we're not quite done. We put no. a, we've put a few pins in the map that we have to come back to. There's a lot still to talk about, which is why it's so much fun doing this podcast, I think. We just keep tripping over new things that we need to talk about and eventually we'll get there but we do have to wrap up for today listen if you out there in listener land want to get in touch with us there's a whole bunch of different ways you can do that you know what on social media the easiest way to do that is just to go and search for us as Syzygy Pod right yep. Syzygy pick, was... pick your favourite social media yeah. check yeah. in Syzygy Pod yeah we're on Twitter we're on Facebook we're out there you can find us we're on Instagram just go and find us as Syzygy Pod throw a message our way and you never know in the past people have contacted us and we've turned it into entire episode so that would be awesome do you know what else would be awesome is if you helped us to grow this show we really want to find more people who love space and astronomy and the cosmos as much as we do and there's a couple of ways that you can do that the best way is just to tell everyone about it tell your friends tell your family tell the people down the road tell your dog go and listen to the Sisyphe podcast because it's just every week full of really interesting things you can tell the world through leaving us a review on your podcast catcher of choice whether that's Apple Podcasts or or Spotify, or whatever it might be. Leave us a review, give us a bunch of stars, and it helps us to rise up above the noise and people can find us. There's one more way that you can help us out. You go to patreon.com slash, you guessed it, SyzygyPod. Then you can become a patron of the show. Throw a, a dollar or a pound our way every, every time we release an episode, and it'll help us to keep the lights on, to keep the server going, to keep the podcast going. And if we get enough patrons, it might even help us to go and, I don't know, travel around and see really interesting astronomical events around the world. But otherwise, we're going to have to wrap it up there, so we'll be back again in about a week's time for some more astronomical goodness. Emily, I'll see you in a week's time. See you then. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. And welcome to episode 31 of the Syzygy Podcast. My name is Chris Stewart, and as ever, on the microscope... Uh, not the microscope. <laughs> it's not a microscope. It's a microphone. I'm going to try that again. Hello. And welcome to episode 31 of the Syzygy Podcast. My name is Chris Stewart, and on the microscope... No, not the microscope. <laughs> That's two. I'm now overthinking it. Come on, it's a microphone. It's a telescope. It's not a telescope. It's not a microscope. It's a microphone. That's what you get when you cross a microscope with a telephone. <sighs> okay.